0: Hello there and welcome to the third podcast of My Dog Will Eat My Face. This is actually going to be part one of two of a short series as to what it is like to be dying. And in part one, it's it's my plan to cover the physical stuff as well as the embarrassing stuff and why gravity has become my new arch nemesis. So, with that said, I feel it necessary to begin with a very fresh, hot off the press report, so to speak, of an incident that happened last night. Now wait a minute, if you're listening to this a year from now, obviously that doesn't apply to you. If you're listening to this uh, somewhere around the end of September 2021, then it's been within the last few days at least. If it's later, I don't know, I might be dead by then and it doesn't apply. But anyway, at the time of this recording, (laughs) this happened last night, so... Uh, what basically occurred is uh, in an ordinary night no uh, nothing interesting no incidents to report nothing nothing going on per, per usual I woke up at uh, three o'clock in the morning Woo-hoo, the witching hour <laughs> so I uh, went ahead and... Uh, Used the little boy's room. That was that's why I woke up. Uh, pretty normal, uh, and using the restroom went off without you know any issues. That's always good. You never know, <laughs> but no nothing happened in the bathroom. Uh, I then realized that I was thirsty. My throat was quite dry, and I get this a lot. I, I don't know for the life of me why this happens every time I sleep. I have the driest throat known to man. It seriously feels like I've been out in the Gobi Desert sucking up dust all night long or something. Uh, Or or perhaps I I was screaming all night at the top of my lungs and and my throat had been completely shot by the time I wake up. So obviously those aren't happening. But I don't know why, otherwise why, I wake up pretty much every time, be it a nap or sleep or what, you know, if I sleep at all, uh, I'm always thirsty. So anyway, at uh, 3 a.m., 3.15 in the morning, um, I heard a voice telling me to uh, kill my family. Just kidding. I'm totally kidding. That's from Amityville Horror, it happened at 3.15 a.m. So, totally kidding. That's not real. That did not happen. Sorry. Um, hopefully, I don't get shut down for that. No, in all seriousness, uh, at 3.15, I realized that I was thirsty. So, I decided to go to the fridge and grab me a beverage. I got myself a Clementine Izzy. So, there's some free promotion there for Izzy. You know, it's one of my favorite beverages, actually. So, uh, again, free promotion. I like Izzy. So, I was drinking the Izzy in the kitchen. Uh, No issue. I just sat there with my thoughts and my beverage. And it's a small can, so you can easily finish it and go back to bed, which was my plan. And, uh... I I got close to finishing it, or maybe I did finish it. I honestly can't remember at this point. But either way, the the can was on the table. I was leaning on the counter, on my elbows, and everything was fine. When, dun dun dun, all of a sudden. Uh, My knees completely buckled and sank. It was like I was on the Titanic suddenly. They just gave out. I could just feel them just say, Nope, we're not holding you up anymore. And down I went. My whole body, all of me went backwards backwards slamming onto the hardwood floor in my kitchen thank god i didn't hit a a granite countertop or anything else my whole kitchen is basically a, a death trap to be in if you're someone who can possibly fall and unfortunately i am one of those people this story is not unique i've honestly fallen before and uh Uh, falling uh, and hitting your head, say, on a granite countertop could be quite, quite awful. So my kitchen is probably the worst place, one of the worst places in the world for me to uh, fall. And yet I did and slammed my butt, my back, uh, and somehow my elbows and even the backside of my arms onto the uh, floor as I went down. So there I was uh, down on the floor and uh, I said something and I'll let the listeners guess what were my first words when I landed full force onto the floor. Keep in mind, it probably sounded like to my downstairs neighbor. I live in an apartment, so I have downstairs neighbors. It probably sounded like to my downstairs neighbor somebody dropped a body. Well, I guess that's true. I dropped my own body. Uh, it was a loud bang and flop at 3 o'clock in the morning of my whole body, full force, landing on a wooden floor. Uh, pretty hard. So I'll give you a moment. Guess what I said. What were the first words out of my mouth? Do you got it? Do you think you've guessed it? All right. Well, I'll tell you. What I said was, (laughs) Exactly that tone and exactly uh, that that loud so I uh, basically was laying there in pain which was just lovely and uh, slowly got myself up off the floor I climbed up using the counter and the, and the drawers and stuff to climb up and put myself up and standing. At this point, my knees are functioning again. I don't know, maybe they just went on strike. Maybe maybe my knees are Teamsters, I, I don't know. Um, so, uh, at that point I got up, and I did what I, I have to do when I'm in a home hospice. I, if I fall, I have to report it immediately to the hospice team. And uh, that is actually, I've I've asked them why, that is actually, uh, I believe, a Medicare requirement, they said. That if one of their patients falls for any reason, they have to report it to the feds within 24 hours. And uh, they don't wanna get in trouble with the feds. I, I can tell you from experience, I don't blame them. It's not a good thing. So they have to send a nurse over to examine me as well. That's another condition of the law. So I report it. They send a nurse over to examine me and make sure that, I guess I don't know what they're trying to confirm, make sure that there's nothing else going on and make sure I'm okay. So I call hospice here now, 3.30, 3.45 in the morning, and sure enough, they say, okay, we're sending a nurse now, and I've got to wait up for them to show up till about four something in the morning, and uh, the nurse came by, took my vitals, and examined me. My vitals were fine. My blood pressure was kind of low, which is not surprising for four something in the morning when my... Sole intent is to go back to bed. But uh, everything else was perfectly fine and normal. She looked at my back and my butt. And, you know, it's always fun. I don't know about you. I, I love flashing my butt to strangers, it's just so, you know, therapeutic and exciting to do. I'm not serious. I hate doing that. So, anyway, <laughs> she had to look at my butt, total stranger. This is one of the things you kind of get used to in hospice care. Let me see your butt. Okay, well, here we go. Uh, <laughs> didn't realize I was in the local bathhouse. Anyway, um, so she did her exam, and she just said, yeah, it looks like you're bruised, but nothing serious, uh, and was uh, basically packing up to go on her way. So I asked her, well, well, what caused this? Why why did I fall? And she said, well, it's because your heart, again, is is getting weaker and weaker. Unfortunately, uh, the blood flow was too slow, probably, to your extremities and into your legs to where uh, your legs could literally no longer hold you up, and it sent you down. So that's what occurred again just last night as of the date of this recording, and that is my first example of, I believe what will be many, as to why gravity has become my new arch nemesis. kind of think I jumped ahead of myself there by describing the hot-off-the-press events just, just a second ago. But, uh, well, they were hot-off-the-press, and I felt it important to immediately update folks as to what was happening uh, for anyone who happens to know me. Uh, I know a lot of you, though, do not know me. So uh, I really should dive into, really, the top physical issues that affect me as I go through this experience of dying and my life so far in home hospice care. The most the most prominent, the most significant issue by far is my kingdom for oxygen. And what I mean by that is because of my heart problem, it's enlarged, it is weak, my lungs are underdeveloped and are not profusing enough oxygen, I suffer dramatically from a lack of oxygen, also known as hypoxia, basically, for those in the medical know-how. So take that word to your next cocktail party and impress your friends by saying, Hypoxia. Oh, this martini is so good. It made me hypoxic or something. I don't know. Maybe hypoxic is not even a right word. But never mind. Don't use that word. <laughs> anyway, uh, uh, the lack of oxygen really is the trigger for for I think most of these other experiences that I'll describe, uh, at least from a physical standpoint, uh, as I go through this experience Um, and to elaborate on that a little bit more uh, basically to underscore how how severe this issue is with me I am currently on between 12 and 16 liters of oxygen on a constant 24-7 flow. Without that, my oxygen plummets to a rate that is extremely dangerous. And I say there's a range. I say it's 12 to 16 liters of uh, additional oxygen that is basically pumped into me 24-7 because it it differs a little bit when I might be at rest versus if I'm doing anything. If I'm at rest, obviously it doesn't take as much energy, my heart rate is lower, ergo my oxygen requirement drops. But if I do little things even around the house, put away groceries, clean the countertop, uh, clean the toilet, go use the toilet, whatever it might be, uh, it is something that requires a higher oxygen flow. Otherwise, I dip uh, into dangerous territory. The The normal human, the normal person, has an oxygen percentage uh, in their blood of about 97%, I want to say. Some people I heard have said 100%. That sounds a little hokey. Uh, I guess some people might have that. But... Generally I think the average for a human is a 95, excuse me, 97% concentration of oxygen in their blood. And that's to make sure that oxygen is delivered to all their organs uh, correctly, Uh, they're being fed their oxygen requirements, and they're able to function like a normal human being now as that oxygen level drops it becomes more problematic the heart rate tends to go up and up as that oxygen uh, saturation drops because the heart works harder to get oxygen into your body of course duh so what happens with me without oxygen is is pretty dire if i were to take off my oxygen Even at rest, my oxygen level would drop to generally around 65, 67%. And my at rest heart rate would go up to at least 130, if not more. Uh, Now, if you fall into that range of the 60s, the 60% range of oxygen saturation, you are way into the dangerous category in that you are at risk for a severe heart attack uh, sudden sudden death essentially could happen to you. You can have, go on a cardiac arrest very easily with such a severely low rate of oxygen. In addition to that, even if you don't die every second you spend at that rate of uh, low oxygen, you have to realize that uh, essentially, it's, it's killing your organs throughout your body. Uh, it, that's, that's the worst part of it. So even if your oxygen rate is at that level for a few seconds to a minute, you are causing damage, absolutely, to vital organs, and that could include your brain. You could get obviously brain damage from this very quickly. And honestly, I've seen my oxygen rate drop as low—excuse me, my oxygen percentage—I sh- I should say—drop as low as uh, about 58 percent, according to a pulse oximeter. Now that I—I I, I was shocked. I—I. I, I, doubt it was fully accurate, but either way, it was probably not off by much, and to be that low, I absolutely should have been dead. There's no really logical reason as to why I was able to stay alive and read that and get my oxygen on and recover, which is what I did. Uh, so... Um, I don't understand, the doctors don't understand how I've been able to live through that through multiple occasions. But the problem of it is, is essentially uh, being tied now to supplemental oxygen 24-7. At such a high rate of liters, the liter rate I'm on is extremely high. It is beyond the ability of a lot of traveling uh, abilities loving a lot of traveling concentrators or tanks. Uh, even pure oxygen tanks have a maximum flow rate of 15 liters. So if I use one of those, I have to max it out, and the tank runs out of oxygen in only 20 minutes, which is really bad, <laughs> needless to say. Uh, and you might see people, you know, puddling around. Go, here's a thought. Go to any small casino. Go to any mountain town casino or Indian casino. Any of the small casinos. Or, or forget it. It's probably in Vegas. You go to Vegas too. Anywhere you go for some reason, go to a casino. And you'll see these people in a wheelchair perhaps. Uh, on oxygen. Uh, smoking away. Uh, while playing slots or something in the casino. But it's hilarious. They're, they're looking like they're near death. They're going around on a, a scooter or a wheelchair. They can't walk. They're on oxygen, and they're smoking and gambling. <laughs> in a weird way, I love these people. Talk about uh, calling Juju out. <laughs> In a weird way, I've got a respect for them. They're just, they're just saying, "I don't care." <laughs> I'll, I'll take my chances. <laughs> Daddy needs a smoke and a, and a, and a slot game to get by. <laughs> so, uh, I find that pretty funny. But you see these people out there. The reason why I bring this up, because they're. Obviously, out and about on oxygen, a lot of them have those like little concentrators. you hear them they do like a little choot 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 <f His throat> little puffy noise and um those those tend to not go much higher based on my understanding than maybe three to five at the most I think liters of flow so that's that's a fair flow of oxygen. I will not say it's low, but it, it's fair. I, I think a lot of people have that. Um, if you have a flow of oxygen like that for an acute issue in the hospital, they won't release you, for example, until that gets better. That's just how it is. So it's it's bad enough in that sense. But if I had an oxygen uh, rate that or an oxygen requirement, supplemental requirement of only 3%, I would be dancing and clicking my heels and singing and and running around and kissing people and having a party way more than I do already, probably. Maybe at least a little bit more than I do already. I would probably do it also on Thursdays, not just Wednesdays. So... I would be thrilled if I if I had that opportunity Um, but uh, that kind of underscores the severity of my oxygen deprivation and that I unfortunately don't even have the option to be one of these folks you see on a scooter in a casino on oxygen smoking away and playing the slots No matter how you might feel about those folks, in a weird way, I really respect them, like I said, but what's sad to me is I can't do that because my requirement is so high that I have to be connected to essentially an 80, 70 to 80 pound, it seems like, concentrator at all times. It's a huge, it's not huge. It's a fairly big machine, extraordinarily heavy, that pumps oxygen through a hose into your body, through your nose or mouth. In fact, I'm on two of them because I'm I'm on such a high oxygen flow. Normally one is by far more than enough than for a common human. They go up to 10 liters, and that covers probably the vast majority of the population of folks that need supplemental oxygen. Unfortunately, I've come close to maxing out both concentrators. Uh, There have been times where I've needed 18 liters of flow. So again, they max at 10. If I put them up, each one up by just one more, I'm I'm at 20 and that's the max. And that is the most I can get at home with current medical science. So if my oxygen rate gets any worse, or much worse, I don't know what I'll do. Um, Beyond living in a facility or a hospital on perhaps even a ventilator, I wouldn't have any other choice to stay alive. Um, Needless to say, that would Really, really suck. So, to uh, start off uh, the uh, physical issues that I have as I'm experiencing this, again I will repeat my kingdom for oxygen. So, another Major component of my physical ailments as I deal with essentially dying and uh, going through this process is something I already touched on in actually the introduction, and that is basically collapsing. Uh, I, need it's, I, I need to underscore that what I described was not unique, it's, it's happened before, and it's probably going to happen more. And yay, that rhymed. Um, So essentially what happens is once in a while I will lose consciousness and basically just go down, as I described in the introduction, and faint. I usually, well actually every time except for this last time for some reason, lose complete consciousness and go down and when it occurs I have no warning whatsoever it, it just happens I can be doing something uh, where I'm just sitting at my desk where I'm walking to the bathroom where even I'm just getting into bed perhaps even laying in bed to where I will suddenly lose consciousness and just go down or and, and, Collapse wherever I might be standing, and that is uh, extraordinarily dangerous for me for two reasons. The first is because uh, this happens, and and or at least could happen, and I will fall wherever I may be. In fact, there was another time where I fell in the same kitchen that I described earlier. And the first time I felt was not so pretty. I I did lose consciousness. One moment I was in the kitchen. I can't remember what I was doing. But whatever. I was doing something. And next thing I know, I'm on the ground in a pool of my own blood several minutes later. Now, me, you know, having the appropriate priorities for taking care of myself and reacting accordingly to such a major injury, uh, especially one like this, where where my head was actually bleeding profusely, that's where the blood was coming from, so clearly I had a head injury probably because I hit it on the granite countertop as I went down. So, with, with such a major injury, the very first thing I did was clean up the blood in the kitchen before it stained. So that was my first priority, was to clean things up. I, I held the uh, cleanliness of my apartment above my own personal well-being. <laughs> uh, all I did was wrap a towel or something around my head and said, that will do for now. And uh, diligently cleaned up the puddle, and all the blood splattered all over from it. And uh, it took a while. There was a lot of blood. Uh, So I (laughs) vigorously cleaned that up. And then I did the next smartest thing. I went to bed, which is, I think I've heard, the worst thing you can do when somebody faints. (laughs) because that is easily a way to make sure they will never again wake up. You have to, there, you have to keep them awake oftentimes once they, once they faint, because there's a chance they can fall into a coma or something if they go to sleep after that. So me, as brilliant as I am, first cleaned the kitchen, then went to bed. Those were my priorities. With the towel just wrapped around my head, that's all I did to help the bleeding. Uh, I then woke up, several hours later obviously, towel was still around my head, but my bed was completely soaked in blood now, so the head was clearly still bleeding, it was still a major issue, and finally at that point I said, okay, I better go to the hospital. (laughs) So it took that for me to get off my butt and realize that this was a major injury and I need medical attention. So I went to the hospital, and they, they looked at it, and they confirmed. I basically cracked my skull open. Um, I've got a fissure along my skull on my right side that you can still feel to this day. It's, well, it's not obviously broken. It's um, basically a long uh, lump. It, it feels like you know a healed uh, broken bone with scar tissue or, or whatever all over it, you know. It feels like a, a heel wound, you know, a heavy wound that's healing. And so it's a big, long lump along the side of my head. You can feel it to this day. So I definitely cracked my head, and I definitely did brain damage is what they said. I definitely had a, had a major concussion and definitely caused some brain damage when I smacked my head that hard on the granite uh, countertop. So that's just the first severe risk of fainting, um, which again is unfortunately a regular occurrence with this uh, disease and with this dying process. And that's not the most severe risk, believe it or not. Uh, the, The more severe risk is that when I do faint and essentially go to sleep, I never ever wake up again. I essentially either go into a coma or die. And, you know, when that happens, that's that. And it could happen anywhere, at any time, with no warning. And that's really the scary part about it because these fainting spells, when they happen, there's no warning, at least in my cases. Nothing tells me that I'm about to faint. I don't feel it. I don't feel wobbly. I don't, um, nothing. I I don't have any indicia whatsoever to tell me I'm about to go down until I go down. And so, with that said, this could happen... While I'm sitting in my chair, while I'm just walking to the bathroom, while I'm sitting on the toilet, I could pull an Elvis um, <laughs> in the bed. Uh, I, could, I could have this happen while I'm sleeping, where uh, essentially um, a fainting spell hits, and that's it. And the reason why is, it, a lot of people don't realize this, and this is something you can actually take to a cocktail party and tell your friends, um, because this is actually interesting. But when when you do faint, a lot of people don't know this. You, or you, are, your heart actually stops beating briefly. Your heart actually stops, just for a brief moment. But that's what causes you to lose consciousness. You're not getting blood flow to the brain anymore. You lose consciousness and you go down. So that's what fainting is. You, you briefly have your heart stop, which is kind of scary. But generally it's harmless. The heart restarts, and uh, you know nothing else major happens, um, again, unless you hit your head on something or whatever, which could happen, frankly, to anyone who faints. But um, that, that's a fun fact. It, it's basically your heart stopping. So with my condition... There is a much higher risk, a substantial risk actually, that my heart will not restart after I faint. So that my heart will stop beating, probably because of lack of oxygen, weakness, uh, anything like that could cause it to stop. Uh, It could even happen while I'm sleeping. And that's it. My heart stops and doesn't restart, and that's basically the end of the show. And it can happen anytime, any moment, any night, doesn't matter what I'm doing, and it'll have no warning. That is the scariest part about this issue that I deal with. It pretty much And fear daily. It doesn't happen daily, thank God, but it's happened enough times uh, to make it quite scary. And that's why I say if it happens in my sleep and my dog is there sleeping with me, I'll perform my last really cool magic trick for my dog. I'll suddenly turn into a rotting ham sandwich in the middle of the bed. And my dog will go, wow, my daddy turned himself into a ham sandwich. And will dive in and take a bite. <laughs> and now you know the origin of the name of this podcast, if you didn't know it already. So there you go. Um, that's my fear. And that is another major uh, issue that I have to deal with. Uh, as I go through this dying process. So moving forward, a another physical uh, condition that I've been dealing with as I go through this process, as they like to call it in hospice care, death is just a quote-unquote process they Oh, it's very interesting anyway another uh, another fun feature that I've experienced uh, and this is of course due to the lack of oxygen um, which I'll get into more of but it is water retention and essentially uh, just awful awful bloating <laughs> and bloating is a serious, serious problem. Water retention is a serious, serious problem. And I will bet every, maybe not every, but a lot of middle-aged women listening to this saying that bloating is a serious problem are saying, yay! You go, girl! (coughs) Sorry. (coughs) I promise to never try to do a high voice again. (coughs) Anyway, so... Bloating, water retention, what happens is the heart is so weak is that it can't effectively pump the fluids throughout the rest of my body. And that being said, my body, instead of, of pushing fluid that I ingest, no matter what it might be, not just water, iced tea, juice, milk, liquor, whatever it is, It tends to not make it through the kidneys and the liver and and exit the body, but rather it gets retained in the actual tissues of the body. And that causes a lot of uh, swelling and bloating. The worst place where it can happen in my case is in my stomach, so it looks like I'm basically um, a complete fatty, <laughs> an enormous belly. Now, it actually looks like I'm probably six months pregnant now at this point, whereas before the, the water retention, um, I was a pretty wavy, thin, little guy. I think everyone said that, uh, you know, they could easily break my neck like a chicken, so to speak. I was such a little guy. Uh... And uh, now I weigh more than I ever have in my entire life, uh, and, and no, it's not because I'm going to the buffet uh, and eating everything at, uh, you know, at the Applebee's or something awful like that. No, it's, it's water retention, it's bloating, uh, and it tends to be retained in the stomach, in the legs, in the feet. And in the ankles at least in my case. Although with this with this issue it could technically be stored and retained anywhere in the body, the face, the, the head and actually I do get some retention in the face. I, I have noticed that I do get some water retention there. Um, but it, it could really appear anywhere. in my case the worst places are the stomach and the feet and ankles. that's, that's by far the worst the water retention. Uh, another fun word for it uh, that causes is edema. Uh, I'm sure many people have heard that word before. And Edema is just the su- swelling of, of tissues in the body because of fluid retention that cannot make it through the liver and then the kidneys to be passed along. And that's because the heart is, at least in my case, the heart is so weak. It is incapable of uh, beating effectively to push that fluid that you have uh, swallowed or or ingested through your system and out um, through uh, uh, your kidneys and into the toilet where it should go. And instead, it, it stays in various spots anywhere within the body uh, it, it is controlled somewhat they try to control it with medication uh, they basically give you diuretics that try to make you pee constantly to get the water out of your body uh, at this time I'm on what my doctor described as an elephant load <laughs> of diuretics uh, they couldn't possibly prescribe anymore they said I'm on the highest possible dose a human could possibly handle uh, just to get the fluid out of my body and even with that unfortunately like I said I know way more than I ever have before just since I've joined hospice I've gained 40 pounds of water weight it is truly disgusting uh, it is truly Embarrassing. People look at it, and you know, there might be parts of my body that are completely thin, and then there's other parts where, such as my belly, it looks like I'm six months pregnant. And it's just super embarrassing. Now, then, too, if my feet swell up, which is another common problem, it can get so bad to where I can't possibly put on shoes. So, what do I do? What do I do if I have to walk my dog? Uh, there have been times where I literally had to go out just in socks or barefoot. And people looked at me like I was crazy. But my feet were so swollen, I could not possibly even put them in the shoe. It's not, I'm not saying I couldn't tie the shoe. I couldn't uh, seal it or make it tight enough for me or whatever it might be. I couldn't even put my foot in inside the shoe itself, it was so badly swollen. That's happened a number of times, Uh, many times, in my case, with this edema. Uh, And so that that is a a really um, serious experience that I've had. And that's that's probably half the battle I have with heart failure, is water retention. Anyone with heart failure will tell you the same thing. it's the water retention, the bloating, the edema essentially that uh, makes life very difficult for a lot of people Uh, in fact another place where edemic fluid likes to hang out is inside your lungs so it also causes a really fun cough that will suddenly hit Uh, you could be standing there and the next thing you know you've got a bunch of fluid in your lungs you've got to bring up and it's, it's not Bronchitis. It's not pneumonia. It's not COVID-19. A lot of people immediately think that and freak out if you cough and but Let God help you. Uh, but in my case, it's, it's edemic fluid. It's just uh, fluid from my body that my heart could not pump out of my system. And if I'm not fully compliant with my diuretic medication, that is to make me pee out fluid, I feel it immediately, it immediately hits me, Uh, especially in the lungs where I notice it most, because suddenly I'm gurgling in my lungs, I'm coughing up fluid, can't breathe, even more so I can't breathe, that is. And uh, I'm bringing up edemic fluid out of my lungs. Um, Sorry, my voice is still hoarse now from being so high. Again, I apologize for that. Anyway, that is uh, that is another uh, problem that I experience is this uh, edema and bloating. Another way to treat it, so to speak, or a way to handle it, is actually massage. Believe it or not, um, especially really with respect to the feet. Uh, my feet when they get swollen, it's it's it looks like I have an elephantitis to be blunt. Uh, so this is some of the embarrassing stuff that this was process uh this the, the feet essentially swell up on the top of the foot with a big dome looks totally unnatural it's it's so bizarre it looks like a normal human foot except the very top of it where you normally would maybe see your you know a little bit of your bones and it's normally a hard surface like you know normal foot instead it's like this big uh dome, squishy dome on the top of your foot—that it's just—it could be enormous, and, and all what's in there is fluid that you're retaining. So, so the second way to handle it, uh, and I've tried this before, is actually uh, edemic massage, where what they do, the massage person, the masseur, what they do, is they push the, the fluid from the foot back up towards the heart or the fluid in the legs and the ankles. They they push it back towards the heart so up towards your uh, torso. Um, and, and it's a really a trip when it, it's done because you can physically see these these pockets of fluid being pushed through your foot up the the ankle and up through the knees and legs and everything as the masseur pushes it towards the heart. So you can actually see the fluid move inside you which is a real trip. And, and the person doing it says they can feel it. They can feel it like, it like it pops and they can feel the fluid moving away as they push it with their hands. So it's kind of trippy when they do it. Uh, unfortunately, it's also extraordinarily painful. The nerve pain from edema is insane. So, unfortunately, because of my edema, I'm on a lot of painkillers uh, normally, you know, basically full-time. I'm on one painkiller or another because edema swelling is so painful and so difficult on the nerves. Uh, it gets so bad in my case that if I'm experiencing uh any significant edema in my feet especially just touching it just uh, if I take my finger my own finger and touch my foot where it's swollen it is a sharp terrible shooting pain so when you get these edemic massages they're actually extremely painful it feels like it feels like you're going through an al-qaeda torture to be honest it, it's intense, but when they're done and when they've moved that fluid out, you have such a relief. The swelling is gone in your foot. Uh, you can walk again. There's no more, you know, constant edemic pain. Yeah, even when no one's touching it, it just, for a moment, just feels so wonderful. And I say for a moment because it is temporary, obviously, the fluid is then going to, roll back down slowly to where it was and, and crowd where it shouldn't be and again and then give you be a problem uh, unless you get it out of your body through a diuretic uh, so it's a temporary solution but it can last you know a few hours uh, which is enough for me when I'm having a lot of edema a lot of swelling and the pain, the regular pain, is just so bad from the swelling that even though the massage itself is way more painful, the aftermath of perhaps a couple hours of bliss is worth it. So, uh, definitely I, I engage in the, that kind of massage whenever I get the chance. I'd probably even let a strange hobo give me an edema massage, I love it so much. So. Uh, that is a, another fun factor of, of the condition and uh, my experience as I'm uh, uh, dying in a home hospice that I wanted to share. Now, so far, I've described a lot of physical features of my experience that uh, contribute to my feeling that, yes indeed, gravity is now my arch nemesis. I didn't quite mention it uh, in the last segment, but the reason why uh, the fluid pools in the lower parts of the body is because of gravity, of course, my good old friend. But um, moving forward, I am going to talk about uh, a different subject, now a a different physical uh, feature. that I experienced through this that I think touches on the embarrassing side. So uh, bear with me because I I am going to disclose some facts that are very embarrassing, they're quite humiliating, and uh, I can't believe I'm actually going to reveal some of this publicly. So, that being said, it has been odd in that I feel like I've reverted back to five years old, in some respect. And I'll tell you why. Uh, This hasn't happened a lot, but it has happened, and it is just horribly embarrassing. But, unfortunately, another physical event that I've experienced is incontinence. Basically what's happened is uh, I would go to the bathroom and not know it. I would, well several times I've wet the bed, Um, not every time but there's been several times where I have and to me that's shocking, it's embarrassing, it's horrible When I was a child, honestly, I never remember wetting the bed. I've never been a bed wetter as far as I know. I have no recollection ever, honestly, of wetting the bed. So I don't even remember doing that in my childhood. But unfortunately, I remember doing it now in my 40s, (laughs) which is pretty, pretty darn sad. Uh, and uh, I've talked to my, of course, my doctors about this in hospice And they say, well, it's just because the severe fatigue you go through um, As a, as your heart struggles and your lungs struggle You experience this severe fatigue Which is true, I get tired very easily I'm often fatigued uh, Yeah, It's hard for me to get up in the morning It's... I lose energy very quickly, Uh, but apparently it can get so bad to to where I'm so tired, I am asleep and the urge to urinate does not even wake me up. And Basically that's how they described it. So that's occurred a few times and uh, again it's never even happened before in my life, but frankly incontinence is a new new thing that I have to struggle with occasionally. The uh, first time it it happened was actually a very scary time. It actually wasn't in bed. I wasn't asleep when it happened. Uh, It was the time when basically I, I went to the hospital and when my doctor gave me just a few years to live, you know, I mentioned this in the introduction to this podcast series that is the hospital stay. I didn't say what brought me there, and what brought me there was actually uh, an event that included my very first uh, incontinence experience. What was going on is I was actually working from home. It was a normal day. I. It was a Friday. I was just going through my job on my laptop i was in my apartment but you know definitely working and uh, it was afternoon late afternoon i had thaw for lunch i remember that <laughs> uh, my dog was with me and happy and you know, i was looking forward to the weekend and everything was fine And as I was sitting there in my chair at the laptop, I noticed, by golly, the chair was wet. And at first I blamed the dog. I started to yell at him and say, yeah, what did you do? How did you make an accident on the chair? Thinking, oh my God, I can't believe I sat in it. And then I realized, wait a minute, my jeans are all wet too. And it hit me. That wasn't my dog that peed the chair. I peed the chair. And I had no sensation of it whatsoever. I didn't feel like I had to go. I didn't have any urge to go. And I did not even feel I was going. There was nothing there. Shortly after that, uh, I felt like I couldn't catch my breath. I was breathing heavily. I felt like I just, no matter what, I couldn't just breathe. My oxygen level looked great, but I was gasping for air. And then I had just a dire feeling of dread overcome me. Uh, It's hard to explain, just a severe feeling of dread. And eventually, uh, it didn't take long, but I did call 911 because I knew there was something seriously wrong. And later I came to be proven correct, as my doctor said. Apparently my right ventricle was failing. And uh, I managed to change my pants somehow, thankfully, before the paramedics showed up. Um, And they showed up, and then the next thing I did was throw up everything I'd ever eaten that day. Um, That's how I remember I ate pho for lunch. It's disgusting, I know. But basically what was going on is my body was doing a, a full shutdown. It was it, the organs were shutting down and, and I was beginning to expel everything. You know when a person dies they you know they wet themselves. they if they have, if they have to go, they will also you know do number two on themselves. Uh, they'll also often throw up before they die the body will just expunge everything as it starts to go through its own process of, of dying and in hindsight after things calmed down and I got to the hospital and you know a few days had passed we all realized that's what was going on that's what made me unfortunately pee myself at the time was I was going through the beginnings of a death process, um, so that was the really scary first event of of incontinence. But obviously, it's it's continued um, since then. So that that's that's a true but very embarrassing fact of another. Uh, miserable physical feature that I've had to deal with as I am dying. But that one, thankfully, I guess, is probably no fault of gravity's. Finally, as I discuss the physical issues that I go through through this process, uh, one that I wish to touch on is the essentially the slow rate with which deterioration seems to uh, plague me. And what I mean by that is in my time in hospice so far has already been Extensive. I've already been in hospice for quite a while to where I've had it have to be renewed several times. Each time they basically predict that you have a reasonable chance to die within six months and must demonstrate that in order to uh, be granted hospice care, and it keeps getting renewed with me, even though I don't die in those six months so what is going on am i not really done what what is this and i've talked to my doctors about this the the simple fact is is that even though my heart is terribly weak it is failing there is no way to fix it it is deteriorating and it is going to kill me it's happening to someone who is in their lower 40s in age and is otherwise pretty healthy and at least when the condition began to deteriorate was pretty decently fit and active. So, in other words, I wasn't someone who was, I don't know, trapped in a home somewhere who was also suffering from another major uh, illness of some sort, or was essentially over 65 years in, in age. But I'll, I'll be nice. Anyone who's over 90 years old, you know, I wasn't I wasn't elderly or, or I'm not elderly. I'm not uh, obese. I've never have been obese in my life. Uh, always been a thin guy. and, and, you know, otherwise doing well. So by virtue of all those facts, the experience that I'm going to go through will likely be very, very drawn out. It will probably be a long decline that I will have to go through. Where certainly some days are indeed better than others. I'm certain that some weeks will be better than others. And if you were to graph it, there will be many upswings in how I feel. But if you were to fall back and look at the full scope of of my time in hospice and the deterioration, you will see a very long but very steady and certain decline bringing me to death and I say this because even though it sounds wonderful <laughs> to know that hey you got extra time you're you're going to take a long while to finally kick the bucket likely so far you're hanging in there you're being strong, way to go, you're, you know, rah, rah, rah. That's all fine and dandy, but I, also from my perspective, there are many times when I'm dealing with these physical issues, and I can't help but think, oh, for crying out loud, get it over with already. And if I'm dying, why can't I just go? What is this? And it's at times where I'm very frustrated and uh, despondent even perhaps, especially with these physical issues. Um, But it is what it is. Uh, Frankly, I'm just gonna take a while to deteriorate. It's not going to be an overnight thing. It has not been an overnight thing. It's going and has been long and drawn out but certain in its decline and probably just as certain in the final outcome. So as I come to the end of this particular podcast, I want to point out that This is actually just a summary of the physical characteristics of my decline that I'm experiencing. I am quite certain I've left some things out, such as the neuropathy of my toes, that's one example. Uh, But I'm sure there are many other that uh, I've left out, but I feel that this is, if nothing else, a... Good overview of what the more prominent physical issues are in my experience as I decline in my health. Many listeners may see this episode as just a whining session, (laughs) and I apologize to those, but look at it this way Uh, it's really not. Um, I'm constantly reminded of those in history who, too, had a lousy deck before them. One such individual, one person who certainly knew what it was like to have a lousy day was Winston Churchill, and believe it or not, I often repeat to myself some of his phrases and quotes from his many speeches from World War II, and sometimes even from his position in the Admiralty in World War I, uh, when Britain was fighting in certainly what he called their darkest hour, he would say quite often, never weary, never flinch, and never despair. That is something I take to heart and repeat to myself on the regular. So rather than focusing on my physical losses, I don't dwell on them per se. I don't sit at home and sob and worry about what comes next. I guess I do worry to some extent. but. It's not paralyzing, certainly. I move forward, sometimes as if nothing is wrong. Now, now truth being told, when I do that, I am often reminded harshly <laughs> that that is not the case, that there is something wrong. And I get stopped in my, my petty human mortal tracks. Nonetheless, I, I get back up and face what is coming next. Even though it's it's that rough beast, it's our come at last, just slouching towards Bethlehem to be born. Sorry for the dark uh, Yeats reference there. <laughs> I promise that's the darkest I'm going to get in this podcast here at the end. But anyway, why, why do I move forward? Why must I move forward despite these physical debacles? The short answer is I simply have no choice. What else a man to do? Again, I could could lay in bed all day. I could be solo. I could... I could whine. I could cry. Lord knows I have done all those things. It's it's not uncommon for those things to occur for someone in this position. But it does not have mastery over my day-to-day life. And I think that's a good thing. What has mastery over me is my struggle and my drive to still live my life, despite all these things that are tearing me down physically. And this leads, actually, to part two of this two-part series, which will be coming up. In the second part, I plan to discuss the psychological and emotional challenges. Uh, So, specifically, stay tuned for that. I think the challenges that are emotional and psychological often prove more difficult than the actual physical loss. So that might be quite the uh, interesting uh, second part of this series for listeners to tune into. That being said, don't forget to follow this podcast and set notifications for new new podcasts. Uh, I know uh, it can be annoying to get push notifications to your phone, uh, but this is hopefully just a weekly podcast or somewhere there around, so I I promise not to inundate listeners with new episode, new episode, new episode, new episode, uh, until you defenestrate your phone. (laughs) I don't want that to happen to anyone. So uh, definitely uh, I'll try to keep it as harmless as possible, but I I ask you to do turn on those notifications so that you are aware when there is a new episode, because in cases such as this, I, I really think that the psychological effect, even though it is more profound, it could also be more telling as to why I... Do get up and move forward, despite these physical issues. And never forget, as I close out, never worry, never flinch, never despair.